0: This is our fourth lesson. We're calling this the Office of Pastor Part 1, Introduction in the Natural Allegory. And as our theme has been, it's church governments, and the common thread and theme throughout all these lessons is authority, the nature of authority. And when we start talking about authority, we know that authority comes to do something. That's why we have the terms like authorization. Are you authorized to do this? Or I am authorized. Who's authorized here? Who can make the call? You're talking about somebody being in charge, somebody being in control. The previous lessons we looked at were the the four types of church governments and how those four styles or types of governments delegate authority and make decisions. For three out of the four, it was a board of people, whether it was a board of elders, a board of bishops, or a congregation. They were the ones authorized, and in the end, they used their authority to tell the pastor what to do. And in that regard, it's almost like a pyramid set on its point. That's not a very stable foundation. But when you turn it upside down and you have one head, truthfully, the cornerstone, the capstone, the Lord Jesus Christ, and from him come out the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and that is delegated down to the congregation or the flock of God, then you have this broad foundation on which the church stands, and that's pretty awesome. We proved that the executive form of government is the only biblically sound form of government. And that means one person is in charge. So for some folks, especially in America, that freaks them out. One person's in charge. What about checks and balances? Oh, God's got good checks and balances. If you mess up, you die. That's just kind of how it worked throughout the whole Bible. Uh, God has a way of demoting people if he wants them demoted. If a pastor of a local congregation gets in trouble, I've seen it just in my lifetime, people start peeling away from the church god makes sure the motion comes if the if the shepherd walks away god himself even promised in jeremiah that he would smite shepherds if they ever got out of the way if they ever got off the track the lord himself said i will smite them and they shall never eat again other place he said they'll never labor again they'll never work again and so we have to trust god in that that's better than letting a congregation run the church And the problem with letting a congregation have a say is uh, about 90% of the congregation is not spiritual enough to even know God if you walked in the room. The the guy that just got born again, you're going to let him steer the church with a vote? Uh, The the couple having adulterous affairs, you're going to let them steer the church? The the businessman who's a pervert and he's controlling the church with his money, you're going to let him have a say in it? These folks don't know God from a hole in the wall. So you can't let the people run the thing. Even proven throughout the Old Testament, when you gave the people a say, they were always voting to go back to Egypt. They said, ooh, I have an idea. Let's go back to slavery. Time and time again, they said, ooh, I have an idea. Let's worship the idols on the mountaintops. Ooh, I have an idea. Let's sacrifice our children to Molech. When you let people have a say, they always ran away from God. But when a man was in charge, or a woman like Deborah, and they led the way, when an executive was in charge, throughout the whole entire Bible, and they walked with God, they always successfully brought the people back to God. But you never see a group of people in the Bible leading a bigger group of people back to God. It was always one leader, and that's how God works. So we established in the previous lesson that the executive form of government is the only biblical form of church government. It's the only way to properly uh, run an administration, to run an assembly. And so that brings us to this lesson, and this lesson is the local executive, the local leader, and that is the pastor. We're going to deal only with the pastor because we're dealing with local church governments. Apostles are executives. Prophets, to some degree, are executives. An evangelist, if he's the head over his own ministry, like Billy Graham, he would be the executive. And then teachers, you could have a good teaching ministry like Reverend the the Josephs that were just with us. They have a teaching ministry and they are the executive over their ministry, but they are not executives over a congregation. So we're not going to look at apostles and prophets, evangelists or teachers. We're only going to focus on the pastor because he is the local executive over the local congregation. And the local congregation or the local church is where 99% of the body of Christ is supposed to live. Now we say supposed to because not every Christian is in church. They're backslidden. But this is where the Lord lives. The Lord lives in the local church, the local congregation, the local sanctuary. So we're going to look at the pastor. Let's look at our lesson here. As we have previously proven, the executive form of church polity or governance is the most biblical in application. By executive polity, we are referring to ruling and decision-making power being given to a sole individual or executive. That kind of freaks some people out especially after 236 years of a democracy. Truthfully, America is not a democracy. We are a republic. We are a democratic republic. Every vote in America does not count. The votes in America go towards an electoral college, which then represents or elects the the president, what have you. Uh, We're used to voting in this country. Uh, The gospel is much more easily preached and understood in monarchies. (laughs) When you have a royal family over a culture... They understand kingship. They understand I don't have a say. I am a servant to my king. I am a servant to my queen. Here in America, we have fought and gotten into a ditch over equality. And we want to say everybody's equal. Really? The guys in jail, they're equal to you? How come the government took away their right to vote and own firearms? Uh, The people that robbed your home, they're not equal to you. Even the kingdom does not teach equality. The kingdom teaches great and small. The kingdom teaches some are given five, some are given three, some are given one. And if you don't do well with one, what you have will be taken from you and given to him that has much. That's the opposite of what governments are trying to do right now, which is take from he that worked hard and have much and give it to the guy that won't do anything. The Bible does not teach wealth redistribution. The wealth teaches stewardship. And when you fail at stewardship, what little you do have is taken from you by God and given to him that is faithful. (laughs) And so, we're not really interested in basing the scripture on our culture. We ought to base our culture on the scriptures. This executive form of polity is in contrast to boards or congregations possessing the ruling and decision making power. Now, obviously, we're not against boards, we're not against congregations, but when the power rests in them, we're not biblical. Solomon had 11 secretaries, as in Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of the Treasury, Secretary of the the Priesthood, and he had 12 governors under him that governed the tribes but he did not have a board telling him what to do he heard from god and when he got into sin and started having all those concubines and allowing idols to be set up god dealt with him pretty justly he split the kingdom and took away everything but 10 tribes and only gave him judah and benjamin and who knows what benjamin's good for nothing so that's what he gets God was able to punish him. God's a pretty good judge. We don't need a bunch of backslidden old people in a congregation trying to judge the pastor. They can't even judge themselves to come to prayer on Tuesday and Thursday. (laughs) They want to watch Matlock and work in the Petunia Garden. As a brief reminder, the Bible does not contain one single example of a board, committee, or congregation wielding the authority to make decisions or steer a ministry or body. Not from Genesis to Revelation did a board ever control the man of God? Ever. Never, ever, ever, never, ever. We only deal with the executive of the local church, the pastor. Though the Bible teaches the deep importance and value of a pastor, our current church culture seeks to disarm and equalize the local pastor. That's why we felt have been led to write these lessons. Our culture in America, the American church, wants to disarm the local pastor. Uh, You'll see in other lessons how important the pastor is, how much authority they truly do have. One of the things in America with our culture of equality, we want to make the pastor our equal. We want to make him our buddy. Uh, and, and, and we'll see this through the rest of this lesson. We want to call him Bob or Jim or John. And that's, that's not proper biblically. There's this equality. There's this great equalizing attitude in some cultures. America happens to be really good at it where we don't want to respect authority. We even see it now in our children. The executive over the home is dad. He has a co-executive called mama. And thank God there's at least a little bit of culture, a little bit of honor left where our kids still call us mom and dad. They don't call us Will and Katie. They don't call us Chris and Amanda. But you're even starting to see it in some folks, even teenagers when they get bratty, they want to dishonor their mom by calling them by her first name. My cousin, of course, she's 40 now. When we were kids, she went through a rebellious stage where she called her mom Sue. And even I, as a kid, I went, oh, you don't do that. (laughs) You don't call your mom. That's not your mom's name. Your mom's name is mom. You don't call her Sue. You don't call your dad Russell. It's just rebellion. But yet a lot of pastors are tolerating it in the church because they want to make it cool. They don't want to lead the people. They want to come down to the people's levels. Well, how do you lead people from their level? You can't. Your job as a leader is to call them up. And like Paul said, be like me. Paul didn't say, I'm going to be like you. Paul said, be as I am. You have known my manner of testimony, my conversation, my life, the things that you've heard and seen in me, you do. He didn't say all that fornication at Corinth, I'm going to do. All that law worship that they did at Galatia, I'm going to do. He said, you guys, what what are you doing? You've seen my manner of life, my conversation, my testimony. You're supposed to be like me. And instead, you've gone elsewhere. We have a lot of pastors, unfortunately, trying to come down to the people to make them feel important, to make them feel cool. That seems to be the big motivator in American culture is the cool factor. That We see a lot of that, and that's not biblical. Though the Bible teaches the deep importance and value of a pastor, our current church culture seeks to disarm and equalize the local pastor, emasculating him spiritually and authoritatively. Who are you to tell me what to do? I am the pastor. Well, we pay your paycheck? No, you don't. You tithe to God. You don't pay my paycheck. You tithe to God. Stop tithing. You'll curse yourself. I don't care. God will take care of me. We have these folks. It's, 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 a, it's a rebellious, bratty attitude in a baby church. America may have the best doctrine on the planet and the best education, but we may have the most immature level, immaturity level of all the churches as far as a hunger and an honor and a humility before Jesus Christ. This series of lessons is designed to help the Christian understand, honor, revere, and receive the most out of their pastor. So let's look at this thing here. The executive over a New Testament local church is the pastor. That's why we're focusing only on the pastor. We've proven executive polity or executive government is the most biblical. The primary executive in the church today is the local pastor. For me personally, I'm the the executive over this church. I'm not the executive over First Baptist. I'm not the executive over the Assembly of God. I'm not the executive over the Methodist. I'm the executive over Engrafted Word Church. So I don't have authority over other churches. I have only authority over my church. But let's look at some things the Bible says. Jeremiah calls the pastor, and I like this. This is one of my most favorite terms about a pastor. Jeremiah calls him the principal of the flock. That means the chief one. Uh, That word in the Hebrew means chieftain, chief of the tribe, governor, executive, the principal. When we think about it in the American context, we think about the principal of a high school. Who is the principal of the high school? He is the highest ranking official in that high school. He is the chieftain, the chief. He oversees everything. He's not in the classrooms but he oversees the teachers that are in the classrooms. He oversees the janitors that maintain the building. He oversees the security that secures the building. He has interaction with the community. He is the principal, the foremost one. When you talk about the principal thing, there's principal and there's principal. When we talk about the principal thing, you're talking about the main thing, the chief thing. And that's what the Lord, through the Jeremiah the prophet, calls the pastor, the principal of the flock. And he never called the people the principals of the flock. We even have that expression in American culture, uh, if everybody's a chief, where would, the, where would the Indians be? Too many chiefs, not enough Indians. There can only be one chief. How? <laughs> Old Testament pastors include Moses, Joshua, the judges, David, Jeremiah, and many others, and that'll be covered in Lesson 5. New Testament pastors include, first and foremost, Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, the chief pastor. Uh, James was the really the first pastor after Jesus Christ. James was the pastor over the church at Jerusalem. We don't know who the pastor at Antioch was. Timothy was pastor over Ephesus for a season. Titus over Crete. After Timothy, uh, John the Revelator was the pastor over the Ephesian church. And so th- there's all these folks that took off. Peter pastored a church in Babylon, Iraq. Peter's ap- uh, apostleship took him to Babylon. And he pastored churches in modern-day Iraq. And what's neat is there are even some churches in Iraq today that trace their lineage all the way back to Peter's founding work, which is pretty cool. They've been able to maintain and trace their legacy for 2,000 years. Timothy, a, known, a well-known pastor, as well as Titus. A pastor is one of the five ministry gifts given unto men to perfect the saints, according to Ephesians 4.11. We cover the pastor because his name means the principal over the flock. An apostle is not a principal over the flock. A prophet is not a principal over the flock. The term pastor means shepherd. So he, by definition, leads the local church. He is the one over the local flock. He's the only one out of all five ministry gifts that that is his great soul calling, to lead people. Apostles establish churches but they are not anointed to indefinitely pastor it. They raise up a pastor over it. Prophets don't pastor. Prophets keep the body of Christ going in the right direction. Evangelists feed the local church by winning souls and putting them into the local church. And teachers help balance the local church. But only the pastor has that grace to be the executive and lead the local flock. And in doing that, he perfects the saints. Our English word pastor comes from the Latin verb pasir, which means to shepherd. That's where we get the word pastor. When you read the New Testament, you'll find the word shepherd more than you find the word pastor. In fact, the word pastor is only used once in the New Testament, in Ephesians 4. But the word shepherd is used multiple times. It's the same Greek word, poimen. And it means to feed and lead and to be a pastor. So anytime in the New Testament you see the word shepherd, you could put the word pastor there. And honestly, we could say, quoting Ephesians 4.11, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. Because it's it's interchangeable. The terms pastor and shepherd are interchangeable. So a pastor is really a shepherd or one who cares for the sheep. He's the executive. Sheep follow a shepherd. A shepherd does not submit to sheep. Can you imagine in the natural allegory if a shepherd would go out there and get down on his knee and say, gather around, sheep. What should I do today? Where should I lead you today? Nah. I'm sorry, say again, speak up. Nah. Can you imagine a shepherd in the natural saying, how should I use my shepherd's staff? How should I use my rod? What kind of water are you guys interested in? That, that's insane. And yet from Genesis literally to Revelation, the allegory of natural shepherds and natural sheep are applied to God's people. And so we've got to understand some of that to know how we can expect to be led by a pastor, how we can be fed by a pastor, how his authority is used and how it's not used, and how this thing works. If you can understand how something works, you can get the most out of it. For my wife's birthday, uh, we got her, or actually got some family to buy her this big fancy cuisine art or cuisine art, a food processor and she has a DVD that goes with it because it's so complicated, it's expensive, it's fancy it's about 25 pounds of polished chrome and steel and the more my wife knows how to use it the more she can get out of it she knows what the different buttons do and how that benefits her just like in a pastor of the local church the more you understand how it works the more you can get out of it Uh, with, with the car we just bought it has one of those little cameras that backs up so when you put it in reverse it looks behind you we've had the car for a month or so now. And just, just the other day, I was, I was at Bass Pro Shop, and I was backing up, and I happened to notice on the little computer console, it pointed at a button, you know, it's like an animated thing, and it said, here, to change camera angle. And I said, what? What? I can change the angle on this thing? So I hit a button, and it zoomed in more. And I said, oh. And I hit another button, and it had a top-down view. And I said, how long has this been there? <laughs> Well, since they designed the thing in Japan 10 years ago, apparently, and I just now discovered how the thing worked, now I can get more out of it. And it kind of pains me to think how many Christians are going to church, but they don't know how the local church works, therefore they don't get much out of it. They're going through the motions, they're doing the right thing, but they don't know how to get anything out of it. It's like that car we bought has a sunroof. If we, didn't know it had, if we never bothered to look up, we'd never know it had a sunroof. If we never knew it had a sunroof, we'd never get to enjoy the awesomeness that is a sunroof. Amen. So let's look at the natural allegory and understand some things about how pastoring works. This is strictly biology here. Zoology, uh, what, what the natural world calls animal husbandry, raising animals. So we're going to look solely at the natural biological zoological context of shepherding sheep. A shepherd in the biblical context was a singular man assigned to care for a flock of sheep. We understand that. Typically, the flock was not his own, but belonged to his father or another man much greater than himself. You see that over and over again throughout the Bible. Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father. David kept the flock of Jesse, his father. Very rarely did the flock owner keep his own flock. He had bigger things to do, bigger fish to fry. And typically, if he was really wealthy, he had such big flocks, he had dozens of shepherds under him. That sounds like our father. He is a very wealthy man. He literally has millions of flocks under him. And he sets shepherds over every one of them. In this community, he might have close to 300 flocks. So he has set 300 pastors over them to feed them and nourish them. He didn't have, yes, he has one big flock. We have a universal church, but he hasn't designed all of it to be led by one man. Even even among denominations like the Baptist, we are coming through, I believe it's going to be the end of the megachurch movement. The mega church movement, some of it was good, most of it's not. One megachurch pastor said, the only people that like a megachurch is the pastor. Because it seems, this is me adding it now, seems to pat his ego but what a lot of these folks are recognizing is a church this big cannot be properly cared for. When you have 45 supportive pastors, you've got issues. <laughs> when your population equals, this, uh, the, your church membership equals the population of country towns, uh, you've, got, you've got a city on your hands. And even in the natural allegory, in biblical times, even the natural pastor said, this flock's too big. Let's break this thing in half You, sir, are going to pastor this flock over here. And you, sir, you pastor your flock over here. That's what happened with uh, Abraham and Lot. Their flocks got too big. And even Abraham and Lot had shepherds under them that maintained their massive flocks. And that's what caused the division. The shepherds were fighting over territory. So they went their separate ways. They went over here and went over there. And they could have done things better. Of course, we know it cost Lot dearly. But we're seeing megachurches all about ego and there becomes a spirit of competition. I'm going to have the fastest growing church. I'm going to have the fastest growing church. Well, that's great. But are the sheep being cared for? So we have to be mindful of these things that God has multiple flocks, multiple shepherds. Sometimes he chooses just to have an elite group of folks over here, 20 of them pastored by one shepherd. When you have a million sheep, one man can't manage all that. And these mega church movements are recognizing that. In fact, one, one major denomination, the, the, their flagship church runs almost 40,000. And they realize we're about to really suffer because this pastor who has drawn this many people to him is going to die. And when he dies, we're going to see a mass exodus because we recognize that not everybody is here for the church. They're here for the man. And they have promised that they will never allow a church to get that big again. And now they're even working it into their bylaws that their churches will only get so big. Then they'll peel off and start another work. That way your church is much more effective and can be impacting the community. Here locally, we have a church that does that. It raises up and it starts off over here and it raises up a congregation. And There's enough folks to go start a church over there. And locally, they have three, four or five churches. And the big one runs 1,000 or so, or 2,000, and the little ones run 50, 60, 70, 100. And the sad thing, kind of to some degree, is I was at, I was at a, a dinner party, uh, it was a clean fellowship, and uh, there were some folks there that went to the church, and they said, well this campus over here, it's known for the seeker, but this campus over here, it's known for the deeper. And oddly enough, the deeper campus where the pastor teaches hard and meaty and deep, it only runs 100. The campus for the seeker runs over a thousand. What does that tell you? Anyway, let's look at some stuff here. Typically, the flock was not his own, but belonged to his father or another man, much greater than himself. And these in the biblical context are what his duties included. He lived with the flock. His life revolved around them. When your church is 30,000, you don't live with your flock. No, you're just an executive, executive, executive that comes in the back door, goes in the secret garage or the bat cave, comes up on a holy elevator, preaches a 45-minute canned sermon, and is snuck out the back door again. You don't live with the flock. One of the expressions I say is that the shepherd should smell like his sheep. A shepherd should know the comings and goings of his sheep. A shepherd should know what's going on. He should have his finger on the pulse of his flock because that's what a shepherd is. He cares for His sheep. Pastor Titus Marefu was sharing with me. We were talking about some of these issues of megachurches. He said, man, he said, son, uh, those are not churches anymore. Those are ministries. And and I, 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 I didn't understand the difference in semantics. He said, a ministry only knows people by their faces. But a church knows people by their name and by their hurts and by what's going on. And he said, you can be so big, you lose being a church and you're nothing but a ministry. And right there in my heart, I said, I don't want to be a ministry. I want to be a church. Because, and then, then the Lord reminded me instantly of Matthew 16. Upon this rock will I build my church, not my ministry. Some Unfortunately, some shepherds, all they're interested in is big ministry. Well, who cares about big ministry if you're not making a big impact on people's lives? So they live with the flock. The shepherd, now this is natural allegory, his life revolved around them. Everything he did revolved around his flock. And I have a bunch of scriptures there you can look up on your own. Natural allegory includes feeding the flock. Lots of scriptures there that you can go look up that prove throughout the Old Testament that a biblical shepherd fed the flock. That was his job. He lived to make sure the sheep lived. Sheep, just as a side note, uh, are the most, are the only animal, in zoology, that are not self-sufficient. Sheep are the only animal God created that are not self-sufficient. You will never, ever, ever find a wild sheep. does not exist. You can find wild dogs. We've domesticated them. You can find wild horses. We've domesticated them. You can find wild cattle. We've domesticated them. But sheep, sheep are never wild. They, without doubt, without controversy, zool- zoologically speaking, sheep are not at all self-sufficient. In fact, a sheep is the only animal on the planet that can be lost a mile from home. And I say, that sounds like Christians. <laughs> you go to church a mile from here, but you can't find your way home on Sunday morning. I have a whole other lesson that we've not included called the natural allegory, where I studied a lot of, a lot of natural shepherding and I put together a lesson on it. That kind of gets into that, but we're going to move on here. Leading the flock in its comings and goings. That's part of the natural allegory. Keeping watch for enemies, wolves, hazards, and just providing general safety. That's part of a a natural shepherd's job. Providing a resting place for the flock. A natural shepherd would make sure the sheep were safe and at rest. Sheep in the natural allegory that are not at rest don't eat. They get nervous. And a shepherd's job is to come among the flock and bring rest. And the natural allegory, when sheep are nervous, just the voice of their shepherd causes a peace to ripple across the flock. That's in, that's in natural animal husbandry. If the sheep are nervous, just the presence of a shepherd, when they know their shepherd, brings great fe- uh, peace to all those animals. It's a beautiful, cool thing. And, and you can understand why the Lord would make a sheep so he would have an allegory to apply to his people. Just like Jesus Christ said, my sheep know my voice. that's, That's based on the natural allegory. They provide adequate water. You can see that in the Bible. Healing the injured and sick sheep. Part of a shepherd's job is to retrieve the injured sheep, to anoint it, to bandage its legs, to care for it, to pick the briars out, to pick the rocks out of his hoof. Part of the natural allegory for a real shepherd is pursuing the sheep that have wandered out of the way by accident, not intentionally. There's a difference. Baby sheep... And immature sheep, they can get separated. They get down in a rock they can't come out of. And the shepherd can hear the bleeding. And he'll go pursue them. But if a sheep by choice has wandered out of the way, even natural shepherds in Scotland, in Israel, the Middle East, Africa, they won't go after them. In fact, the term, this is I'm making this up, the term in shepherding vernacular is dumb sheep or hermit sheep or vagabond sheep or stupid sheep. Those are actual terms for that sheep that does not want to have any fellowship with the flock. And they'll often stay off in the distance just within eyeshot, but they'll never come down. And one shepherd I studied after, he had over 50 years of shepherding industry and spent, he'd been in over 40 nations around the world teaching them shepherding techniques, shearing techniques. He said one time he had a a hermit sheep that had not come down in five years. He said, when he finally wandered in, we grabbed him, and I sheared five years of wool off of him. He said, it must have been 50 or 60 pounds of wool. (laughs) There's some pretty neat things there, and I may need to teach that lesson just to include it, because it is a pretty cool lesson. So that shepherds pursue the sheep that have wandered out of the way by accident, not those that don't want to come. We don't pursue those. Caring for all other needs, grooming, shearing, insecticide, etc., One of the things about wool is that on a sheep, wool must be sheared. A sheep, and that's why they have to have a shepherd, a sheep will constantly grow wool. It does not break off. And if a sheep is not sheared, that wool can actually kill it. And the wool can actually kill it because it picks up debris, detritus, mud. And there's a thing called a cast sheep. Now a cast sheep is when a sheep lays down and he can't get up. Sheep are not the most agile of creatures. And a, sh- a sheep can cast even if it's been shorn. What it means is it lays down and it rolls on its back. And if a sheep rolls over on its back, it will not be able to get up without help. And because a sheep is a a rudimenting... Is that the proper term? Uh, animal that has several stomachs that process the food. I think that's called ruminating, a ruminating animal. Thank you, not rudiment. That's a rudimentary. A ruminating animal, if a, if a sheep lays down for too long, those gases build up and if it rolls over... It cannot get up those gases will actually kill it and so the other thing is with all that wool they lay down sure but they pick up mud they pick up manure they pick up rocks and it becomes like dreadlocks that weight can cause that sheep to cast and a sheep that casts can die in a few hours in fact in the natural allegory a shepherd will often as he approaches his flock in the morning he'll look for buzzards because the buzzards will circle over a cast sheep and that's where he'll go straight away to find that sheep and write them. When a sheep cannot be shorn, it risks suicide. But the thing is, that wool represents, for now back to us spiritually, that wool represents our contact with the world. That wool on a sheep represents the sheep's contact with the filth around it. And as a Christian sheep, our contact with the world, if we're not shorn by constant preaching, if, we're, if we don't have our contact with the world sheared every time we come to church and, we, and the preacher, the pastor cuts this off of us and cuts that off of us, it can eventually cause us to be a cast sheep and perish. That is why David used the term in Psalms, Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? He was a shepherd. He understood the cares of the world had weighed him down. The filth of the world had weighed him down and it had cast him. And he's saying, why are we cast? Get up. This will kill you, man. And so that's why one of the things, one of the things a shepherd he has to care for a sheep is he has to shear it. So that all the cares of the world don't weigh you down. On top of that, there's insecticide. There's a whole bunch of allegory with that. There's a thing in the sheep industry called warming season. Usually in the spring when the blow flies and the bot flies come out and they'll actually lay larvae in the snout, and the muzzle of a sheep. And those larvae will work their way up the sinus cavity into the brain. And a sheep will literally kill itself, tormented in its brain because of flies. And they'll say a sheep will actually bang his head into a post or a tree trying to get relief from that mental torment. And some sheep will even kill themselves. And so one of the things that the the shepherd does is he comes along and he anoints the sheep with oil. Frankincense was one of them. There were some others that biblical uh, shepherds would use and that aroma would keep the flies away. Well, that's another psalmist. You have anointed me with the oil of gladness. You could bring that to the New Testament and say when you're anointed with the oil of gladness, the Lord of the flies, Beelzebub, that's what Beelzebub means is Lord of the flies. He can't lay larva on you. He can't cause mental torment. So that's another allegory of shepherding. That the, 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 the spiritual shepherd, the pastor, anoints you with the oil of gladness and it helps keep the Lord of the flies off of you. The oil is also in the wool to keep insects off of you. Uh, they would rub that oil several times a season into their wool and that, that smell would keep flies and keep parasites off of them. That's all natural allegory that is beautifully represented in the local church and in the kingdom of God. That's what a good pastor will do for you. So definitions. The Hebrew word for pastor is ra'ah. And this is what it means in the Hebrew. This helps us to understand what this executive, the principal of the flock, is to be expected to do. The word means to tend. Obviously, pastors tend the flock. They live with them and they live for them. It means to feed. Pastors must make sure the flock is properly fed and nourished. The word means to teach. Pastors feed by teaching doctrine, not just always preaching. The number one job of a pastor is to teach, not preach. Preaching excites and motivates, but it does not feed you. Unfortunately, in America, a lot of pastors, they don't teach. They preach. Preaching is much hype. There's a place for it. Evangelists are the best at it. Evangelists, through preaching, motivate folks to come to the cross. If every sermon you go to in a church is preaching, you are not being fed. You are being uh, uh, motivated. You're being hyped, but you're not necessarily being helped. Pastors are called pastor feeders. Unfortunately, in certain sectors of the church, preaching is the prominent form of pulpit ministry. Now, a pastor should probably teach 10 to 1 over preaching because that's what we do. We feed the sheep. If all we do is get you motivated, we give you nothing to chew on. If all we do is have a pep rally, we give you nothing to ruminate on, something that you can meditate on. Now, it's okay to have a preaching sermon when it's needed But we also have to be laying out doctrines so that you're well fed. To care for. The Hebrew word ra'ah, translated pastor, means to care for. Pastors take care of the sheep and their needs. It means to guard. That's pretty cool. Pastors guard the sheep from thieves, wolves, and dangers. I don't... I, I really am... It breaks my heart when I hear in the media about pedophiles being in local churches. Rapists being in local churches. Children being taken advantage of in local churches ministers having affairs in local churches. That lets me know the, the senior pastor is not spiritually doing his job. I've got to believe the Holy Ghost was trying to tell that pastor, because he's anointed to be a pastor, you have a pedophile that just walked in. You had a businessman just walk in who wants to milk money out of your sheep. Uh, that guy back there is just looking for a young girl to sleep with. Part of the job of a pastor is to guard his sheep from wolves and thieves and any danger. When churches have these kind of controversies and scandals, I got to believe it's because the pastor fell asleep on his job. If the pastor is praying every day for his church and spending time with the Spirit of God, he's going to pick up on stuff because God wants his sheep taken care of. And God is obligated to equip and speak to that pastor for the safety of his sheep. You know, God is very zealous that His people are not taken advantage of. That comes back to Jeremiah where He said, Woe unto you shepherds! I will smite you, for you've neglected My sheep. It also means to rule. Pastors are to rule over the sheep. The pastor calls the shots. And to govern. That word ra'ah also in the Hebrew means to govern. These things give us a definition or a job description of the local pastor. This ties in back to our, our theme in the thread of these lessons, authority and governments and polity. The local pastor is that chief voice of authority and leadership. He's the one that governs and enacts polity or governance in the local church. The Hebrew proves it. A pastor is also a governor. And we understand now, the people are not governors. The the deacon board's not the governor. The elder board's not governing. The pastor is. But look, according to Webster's Dictionary, actually I think this might be dictionary.com, the definition of govern in English means this, preside over, reign over, control, be in charge of, command, lead, dominate, run, head, administer, manage, regulate, oversee, supervise, and be in the driver's seat. That's what the word govern means. And the word ra'ah, translated pastor, means to govern. So right there we see the pastor is the executive. The pastor is authorized to execute the commands of God. Look at the Greek word poimen. Poimen means a shepherd. A pastor cares for the sheep. Presiding officer. That's the Greek word poimen, a presiding officer. A pastor is the chief officer over a local church. Manager. A pastor manages or oversees the local flock. I like the term manager. That helps us understand. That gives us, in the American context, we understand a manager. He doesn't own the store, he just manages it. He doesn't own the company, he just manages the office. Director of any assembly. That's another Greek definition from the lexicon. The director of an assembly. A pastor directs the goings on of the local assembly. And, of course, it's used of Jesus Christ, the head of the church. Jesus Christ himself is the good shepherd. I prefer to call him the great shepherd. <laughs> Doctrinal ignorance. So this is going to address issues in our region and perhaps in America. And so this will help us understand some things. We're just giving you the basic understanding of a pastor. Lesson five talks about Old Testament pastors. Lesson six will cover New Testament pastors. But let's just look at some doctrinal ignorance here. Below is a list of observations that are unbiblical and demonstrate a lack of understanding and reverence for the office of pastor. If you understand that a pastor... The role of pastor, the position of pastor is technically an office. He is an officer. In the military, you have officers and they outrank the grunts or the general enlisted. If we can see the local pastor as an officer, you automatically will have more respect. You call the police officer, yes, officer. You call the officer of the court, yes, your honor. The officer of the school, yes, Mrs. blank or Dr. So-and-so. When, when someone's an officer, they stand in an office. And by definition, they have an office you don't. And by having an office, they are over you. And there has to be a sense of honor in the midst of our heart for an office that is over us. Many Americans do not like this. They would prefer that their officer over the local church, their pastor, be their drinking buddy. They, they brag about how cool. Oh, I got the coolest pastor. I don't want to be your, the coolest pastor. I want to be someone your heart says, that's a man of God. That man stays in prayer. That man walks with God. We have a leader. I don't want anybody ever say, and I understand maybe in the young people, oh, Pastor Chris is cool, whatever. I don't want to be known as the cool hip pastor with the trendy hair and, and the cool jeans. I don't care about that junk. And in the end, that all perishes. I want to leave a legacy that is a move of God and a reverence for Jehovah that most churches don't even know anymore. We're just playing patty cake games. All of these mindsets that we're about to look at fail to recognize the tremendous importance and the spiritual significance of a pastor as a God-ordained leader and ruler over the local flock. Now, I might add this. I learned this from a great minister they basically said, you know who teaches my church to honor me? And they said, I do. They, and they, they were talking to pastors. They said, do not feel bad for teaching your children in your church, your congregation to honor you. They said, in my home, I teach my children how to honor me. That's if I don't teach my kids to honor me, nobody will. And they said, don't be so so falsely, so humble, so false humility, so fearful that you're afraid to teach your church to honor you as the pastor. Because if you don't teach them to honor you, who will? Nobody. It is your job to teach your church everything that's biblical. And part of biblical Christian personality and character is honoring the church leader, honoring the pastor. And so a lot of these church people, they're ignorant because their pastors keep them so. Whether that's by design or by default, I don't know. I've got to think some of it now is is intentionally unintentional or unintentionally intentional. The pastor might be saying, well, I don't want to seem like a cult leader. Well, you're not one. You're just in charge. Well, if I expect them to call me pastor or doctor, if I teach them, that's proper. I don't want to seem arrogant. That's not arrogance. That's proper. You go to the doctor. The doctor says, "Uh, Mr. McMichael, I'm Dr. Phillips. Dr. Phillips, it's nice to meet you, sir. You start off the first semester at a university. Class, I am Dr. Knox. You don't learn his name until you go to his office and see it on his first name until you go to his office and see it plastered on his door. There's nothing wrong with saying, I'm Pastor McMichael. I'm Pastor Chris. It'll help you if you honor me. You'll get more out of me. The police officer doesn't have a problem thumping you. He knows his authority. And he'll, he'll say, watch it, son. He, he'll put you in your place. You'll be a lady. Watch it, ma'am. And he'll, you can be arrested for, for being rude to a police officer, for being belligerent. How come the police understand this better, more than the pastor does in the kingdom? It's because they are taught their authority. Uh, when police know their authority, the city is safe. And when pastors know their authority, the congregation is safe. When police aren't afraid to use their authority, the city is safe. And when the pastor is not afraid to use his authority, the congregation is safe. But as we're facing in America, when just any old criminal can sue the police for thumping them too hard, police start to back off their authority. And they have a second thought. I don't want to be investigated. I don't want to be sued. I don't want to be put down without pay because I shot a thug. So they start backing off. Now we've got to give them 15 tasers and stun guns because they're not allowed to put bullets in anybody anymore. I would like my police to be able to shoot people. If that's what they need to do, I give them, hey, they know what they're doing. I I trust their judgment. I'm sure there's some abuse, but generally speaking, I don't want to just tase a criminal, get them off the street permanently if they've been in jail 15 times. If you've been in jail 15 times, you know what a police officer can and can't do to you, and yet you're still pushing the envelope. And if a sheep knows what a pastor can and can't do to them, they ought to line up. If not, I'm going to kick you out of my church. We've got to understand the authority of the local pastor, what he can and can't do, and line up. Many pastors don't realize their own authority. That's why we've written these lessons, to try to help as many people, including pastors, as possible. If somebody here gets upset and gets snarky and rebellious, I'll just toss them. I'll preach them out. Maybe I send them out uh, in private. Maybe I just preach out their sin so hard they just get to see the writing on the wall and they leave. But they know they can go to five donut churches in my town and be in leadership. Because those pastors don't have the same standard I do. And my standard comes from the Bible. So are they studying their Bible or what? I don't know. So let's look at these. I can get off on so many different tangents on this. As Paul said, I magnify my office. Many churches slash flocks call their pastor preacher. And a preacher only preaches. All pastors are preachers, but not all preachers are pastors. Uh, so don't call your pastor a preacher. Call him pastor. Many churches and flocks call their pastor a brother. Though pastors are brothers, this term fails to recognize all a pastor is and does. A brother is anybody in Christ. I can't stand it when I go to churches and they call their pastor Brother Doug, Brother Jim. They don't even call him by his last name. That just fails to recognize it who, who they really are. Many churches and flocks call their pastor reverend. For me personally, I don't like the term reverend. Only God is called reverend in the Bible. The psalm says holy and reverend is his name, talking of the Lord. Now, I'm not going to overthrow that one. That one's just too ingrained in our culture. I am referred to as a reverend. My ordination papers call me reverend. But, you know, Reverend, so, reverend Billy Graham, whatever, Dr. Billy Graham, Evangelist Billy Graham. Uh, that one, just to point out, only God is called reverend. I don't know who, who dared, thought, to borrow that and apply it to a preacher. But only God, only once is the word reverend used in the Bible, and it's used of God Holy and Reverend is his name. If that's his name, it's like naming your kid Jesus. Ain't nobody gonna name their kid Jesus unless they're Hispanic. And who's gonna name their kid Lord Jesus? Nobody. There's that's that's off limits. <laughs> uh, many churches call their pastors by their first name, i.e., Bob, Chuck, Sal. This may be the most dishonorable of all titles. Even heathen call their coach Coach, their doctor Doctor, their professor Professor, the policeman Officer. Yet in the church, we call God's authorized man, Jim. What dishonor. Many churches hire and fire their pastor by voting. That's not biblical. Many churches expect the reverend brother preacher to do all the work that they, the sheep, dictate. (laughs) Uh, We as pastors do submit to the sheep, but it's usually, Pastor, can you do my aunt's funeral? Pastor, can you pray for me? Uh, Pastor, can you help me? Yeah, we'll submit to you. Pastor, I want you to do this for the church. Not happening. Pastor, I think we should start this ministry. Go away. Pastor, I think we should change that. I didn't ask. Pastor, why don't we buy this property? Go to a different church. Uh, But this goes on in our community. People want to go go tell the pastor how to do things. You can't even tell yourself to come to every service in a week. And you're going to try to help the pastor? It's, It's a sad disgrace, but that is Southern tradition. Uh, Many churches and flocks see their pastor as their equal or worse, one who is subordinate to the congregation. Hey, he's our employee. We pay him. We hired him. He ought to be able to do what we tell him to do. Many churches, flocks, committees see their pastor as an employee. Just to be clear, I am not this church's employee. (laughs) I am this church's pastor, president, CEO, executive, and leader. (laughs) I employ people here. This church does not employ me. Even the government recognizes me as the CEO, president, and founder of this ministry and non-for-profit. The government recognizes me as the chief head in charge of this church. How come some Christians don't? (laughs) It's a sad thing when it all rests in the hands of a bunch of fat, lazy deacons. Many pastors have become merely administrative preachers running the church as a business and preaching canned sermons. I am not an administrative preacher. I am the pastor. I don't just administrate Monday through Friday and then preach on Sunday. I pastor, which is a lot more than administrating and preaching. Many pastors are controlled by boards and committees who vote on the direction of the church. We don't vote on the direction of the church. We let God determine it. The, only thing you, the closest thing you come to voting in the Old Testament is casting lots. We'd call that drawing straws. They'd say, uh, who thinks we should do this? I don't know. Let's draw straws. Proverbs does say that the lots are cast in the lap, but the disposing thereof is of the Lord. Great. And then in Acts 1, they cast lots for the very last time. In Acts 2, they got the Holy Ghost, and from that day forward, they were led by God. Before the Holy Ghost came in Acts 2, they had to draw straws. After Acts 2, they never drew straws again throughout the whole book of Acts or into the epistles because the Holy Ghost was drawing the straws and telling them what to do. Uh, any, as one denominational pastor begrudgingly told me, we were having coffee at Starbucks, He's, and, and he was very frustrated. He said, my denomination wants to be pastor-fed, but people-led, and you cannot have it both ways. These lessons will show from the Bible what a pastor is authorized to do and not do. These lessons will also teach us the way to view, relate to, and honor the local church executive, the pastor. Father, I thank you for this lesson, and I thank you for helping these folks. Father, bless them in their studies. Bless them, Lord, as they study the things of God to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.